The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. I hereby demand, bellowed the king. This is Thursday, May 24th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. The United States is once again under this president dancing on the edge of a constitutional crisis. The latest threat appeared Sunday in a Trump tweet that was, like many of them, ignited by what he'd heard from Fox News. In that tweet, with the words, I hereby demand, Trump declared he was ordering the Justice Department to investigate an ongoing counterintelligence investigation. Never before had a president ordered justice to investigate an investigation, much less one that's still underway, much less one that involves him. Trump wanted an informant exposed. He wants all the past and current files from that FBI investigation turned over to his Republican defenders in Congress. Trump was crossing a line using the United States Department of Justice, which is supposed to be independent, as a tool to make a politically uncomfortable investigation go away by tearing away at its credibility. Issuing an order that is a direct assault on federal law enforcement and its historical independence and nonpartisanship. As Trump told the New York Times late last year, I have an absolute right to do what I want with the Justice Department. We are witnessing history in the making, and it is not pretty. Fox talking heads have been claiming that the FBI under Obama had planted a spy in the Trump campaign to help the Clinton campaign, and Trump echoed that on Twitter for days. Trump's now calling it Spygate to try to make it sound more scandalous. A political scandal, he claims, by what he's now calling the criminal deep state. Trump also gets fired up after his chats with North Carolina Republican Congressman Mark Meadows. The two of them have met several times over the past couple of weeks, much to the chagrin of White House Counsel Don McGahn and Chief of Staff John Kelly. Worse than Watergate, tweeted Trump. Really bad stuff, he wrote. All-time biggest political scandal, he tweeted. In 2012, Trump had written that the rumors about Obama's birth certificate were bigger than Watergate. A few months later, he said the same about Benghazi. Two years ago, he wrote it again about Hillary's emails. In Trump's mind, a lot of things are bigger than Watergate, and the false claims of a spy in his midst now rank among them. Like Trump's claim that Obama had wiretapped Trump Tower, this one is also based on a mangling of the truth. Trump's theory is just speculation, unproven speculation, but facts have rarely stood in the way of Trump or his Republican supporters in Congress. An FBI informant had made it a point to rub elbows with three Trump campaign officials in 2016 as part of a counterintelligence investigation into Russian attempts to manipulate American politics. Those officials were campaign co-chair Sam Clovis, campaign advisor George Papadopoulos, and campaign aide Carter Page. Page was already being watched by the FBI as he pursued his contacts with Russian officials. But no agents or informants were ever embedded in the Trump campaign and their purpose was reportedly not to sabotage or get dirt on Trump. The FBI says it wanted to see if the meddling Russians had been making contact with the Trump campaign and why. It was not a criminal investigation, at least not back then. It was a counterintelligence operation to stop foreign interlopers. Over time, the FBI found that four officials in the Trump campaign had contact with Russians, now including Paul Manafort and Mike Flynn, and the FBI wanted to know what the Russians were up to. 
There is no evidence this informant acted improperly. Fox News and Trump and his Republicans are now demanding that the FBI turn over its investigative notes, which include the identity of this so-called informant. These are the notes Trump defender Devin Nunes subpoenaed from the Justice Department three weeks ago, with the department so far refusing to hand them over. We had already learned the informant is a retired male college professor who supplied the FBI and the CIA with valuable, reliable information for years. His identity is classified top secret, but now it's been published. He's Stephen Halper, a veteran of the Nixon, Ford, and Reagan administrations. He's an American who teaches at Cambridge University in England. The FBI said it was protecting Halper's identity for his safety, for everyone's safety. Carter Page says he remembers Halper and found him pleasant and got no indication the informant was trying to pry any information out of him. Sam Clovis says that when he had coffee with Halper, he had no suspicions and that the subject of Russia never came up. The Washington Post reports that over the past two weeks, the FBI has scrambled to protect the people connected to this source who was in imminent danger of being exposed and to minimize the damage from the source's exposure if it happened as it ultimately did. As FBI Director Chris Ray told Congress last week, the day we can't protect human sources is the day the American people start becoming less safe. Quoting Ray, our partners have to be able to trust that we're going to protect their identities and in many cases, their lives and the lives of their families. In spite of this, in spite of history and precedent, Trump called the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and FBI Director Christopher Wray to the White House on Monday to turn up the pressure that isn't even supposed to exist in the first place. And now we know the guy's name. Trump mouthpiece Rudy Giuliani admits the president cannot be certain that the FBI planted a spy in his campaign. But Giuliani says that if the FBI did plant a spy in Trump's campaign for political purposes, it would shut down the Mueller probe. And that appears to be the president's endgame. He's still calling it a witch hunt. Quoting Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, it is not a witch hunt when 17 Russians have been indicted. It is not a witch hunt when some of the most senior members of the Trump campaign have been indicted. It's not a witch hunt when Democrats and Republicans agree with the intelligence community that Russia interfered in our election to aid President Trump, end quote. Schumer did not mention the five guilty pleas Mueller has scored so far. In the meantime, Trump's demanding an investigation of the investigation. The Justice Department has asked the Inspector General to conduct that second investigation to try to avoid a big showdown between itself and the White House. Attorney General Rod Rosenstein caught between trying to protect the investigation and protecting the investigators from the president has agreed to show his notes on the Russia probe to inquiring lawmakers. Lawmakers, including Trump supporters Devin Nunes and Trey Gowdy, will see these documents, but they won't be allowed to carry copies out of the room, and they'll leave with what they have been told is highly classified material. Still, Gowdy and Nunes are expected to immediately convey what they have learned to Trump and his lawyers. It isn't clear if the FBI will really put all of its cards on the table when all sides gather at the White House today in a meeting arranged and opened by White House officials. Still, some of what the lawmakers will learn will land in the ears of Trump and his lawyers, in essence tipping off the suspect about what the cops are up to. This is never done. This is not normal. This is not right. But it appears to be a way to keep the Russia investigation alive or at least buy it more time. 
Rosenstein made his moves after Trump's angry tweet, but before Trump could issue any actual order, and Trump was reportedly satisfied with what Rosenstein had done. A terrible precedent has been set, perhaps in the name of trying to avoid an immediate and greater constitutional crisis. The DOJ is either going along with Trump's demand to appease him, to calm him, and hoping that this second investigation proves Trump wrong, or the Justice Department has just caved to the president a dangerous first in the history of these United States. Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani shared what he felt was good news on Friday, that special counsel Robert Mueller had agreed to narrow the scope of an interview with Trump to just two topics instead of five, and to limit the interview to two hours, and to try to wrap up the obstruction of justice investigation into Trump by September 1st. Giuliani says Mueller's also promised not to ask anything about Michael Cohen. Giuliani's client may have big reasons for not wanting Cohen as a topic. Team Trump is deadly afraid that Cohen will flip, and the likelihood of that increased multifold this week when we learned Cohen's business partner had flipped on him. Prosecutors are turning up the heat on Cohen at the state level and at the federal level as they investigate his business practices. Now that they have Cohen's business partner, Russian immigrant Yevgeny Friedman, as a cooperating witness, and since a presidential pardon means absolutely nothing at the state level, Cohen moves even closer to caving to the feds. But there's no sign Mueller would be asking about Cohen in this Trump interview anyway. Mueller is reportedly interested in the misleading statement defending Don Jr. that was crafted by Trump and others to portray that the meeting in Trump Tower with Russians was about the American adoption of Russian children. That false statement is one of the things Mueller wants to ask Trump about. The other topic for that interview is Trump's firing of FBI Director James Comey and about the oddly delayed firing of the Russia-compromised Mike Flynn. Both topics appear to concern obstruction of justice, and although Trump reportedly still wanted to do the Mueller interview, Giuliani was still against it. Giuliani says that interview is a perjury trap, while he also assures us that Trump would not lie in that interview. To that end, Team Trump is also trying to limit the investigation, not just its length, but its scope. Trump's legal team is now trying to get Mueller to narrow his questions only to what happened before the election and to ignore everything after. We've already seen evidence Mueller is focused also on what Trump has done as president and not just as a candidate. It's while in office that Trump has tried to obstruct justice, which is the main focus of Mueller's investigation of him. Giuliani says Mueller is out to prosecute this president or get him impeached, and now Trump appears to have soured on the interview again as well. He'd walked away from the idea after the FBI raid on Michael Cohen's office. He appears to be walking away from the interview again after hearing talk that the FBI had spied on his campaign. Mueller could get a subpoena compelling Trump to talk, but the subpoena itself could get tied up in court with challenges. Giuliani says Trump needs to know more about that FBI informant before he does any interview with Robert Mueller. And Giuliani says the interview cannot interfere with the North Korean nuclear talks, if they're still on. Giuliani estimates the interview would happen in mid-July. We haven't heard Mueller say any of this. This is what Giuliani says Mueller told him. And Giuliani says Mueller told him that if Trump agrees to an interview soon, the part of the investigation into Trump and obstruction can be completely over by September 1st, two months before this year's highly charged midterm elections. 
it would not be the end of the Russia probe, but the obstruction of justice investigation involving Trump would be over by then. Trump has reportedly insisted that the results of that investigation be made public. So what happens then? Can a sitting president be indicted for a criminal charge like obstruction of justice? Probably not, but maybe. The Constitution does not prohibit it, and the Founding Fathers spent a good deal of time talking about this. They did not intend for any one person to have total criminal immunity, certainly not the head of one of the three branches of government. The Justice Department policy recommends against indicting a sitting president. It has never happened, and Robert Mueller is not expected to diverge from the department's policy. Giuliani says Mueller has told him he will abide by that policy. They can't indict, concludes Giuliani. That said, the policy has never been tested in court, and if it were to be tested, it might not survive since it isn't in the Constitution. In the minds of many, indictment is still an option, however unlikely. In the Nixon administration, the Office of Legal Counsel found that despite its troublesome drawbacks, impeachment is the only appropriate way to deal with a president while in office. Impeachment lawyer Jonathan Turley writes in the Washington Post that if Trump and his lawyers are smart, they would prefer an indictment over impeachment. For one thing, a person who's indicted has certain rights not granted to those being tried by Congress. Congress can use hearsay evidence while a jury cannot. Congress doesn't need the chain of custody for evidence that regulates criminal prosecutors. And there is no jury. Just 100 elected politicians, many of whom go into the proceedings with their minds made up. And if a blue wave turns Congress over to Democrats this year as expected, Trump would likely be impeached based on the existing evidence. And then he can be indicted. Jared Kushner's family has been trying to unload a building for three years now, the building at 666 Fifth Avenue that's now 61 years old. As White House advisor and Trump's son-in-law, Kushner has looked worldwide for the millions his family's company needs because of that building. Kushner companies paid nearly $12 billion for that building 11 years ago using a lender for the money. But the rents it charges do not pay the mortgage, only about half of it, and the mortgage comes due next year. And nearly a third of the building is vacant. As Trump's point guy on the Middle East, Jared has combed the Middle East for cash, focusing more recently on a billionaire in Qatar. Now the New York Times reports Kushner Companies is close to getting a bailout of 666 from a company with close financial ties to the government of Qatar. Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner was stripped of his White House security clearance in the dead of winter Yesterday, he got it back in spite of his status as a person of interest in the Russia investigation, in spite of Jared's presence at that Trump Tower meeting with Russians, in spite of his role in the firing of FBI Director James Comey, in spite of the fact that Jared left dozens of foreign contacts off the FBI questionnaire about foreign contacts. And finally, finally filling out the FBI forms properly, Kushner has his clearance again and this time it's permanent, at least as permanent as is the Trump administration. The president's son, meanwhile, was meeting in Trump Tower with representatives of two wealthy Arab princes, a Republican donor with ties to the Middle East, and an Israeli who specializes in social media manipulation. 
The New York Times also reports that three months before the election, this social media manipulator and the donor and Don Jr. were all there to explore how Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates could help Trump get elected. It was one in a series of meetings arranged by these two businessmen peddling a supposed back channel to the Trump administration. One of the businessmen would later pay that social media manipulator a lot of money. It is important to remind ourselves in these unusual times that it is highly illegal for any foreign government to meddle in American politics. But the Arab world was frustrated with Obama's Iran deal, his avoidance of involvement in Syria, and his support of the Arab Spring uprisings. In other words, it appears that Arab countries like Russia were dabbling in the selection of a new American president in a Trump Tower meeting, very much like the one with a gaggle of Russians and Trump Jr. and son-in-law and Trump's campaign manager. And therein is the first sign that a country besides Russia had sought to intervene in the U.S. presidential race. How far that effect went is still unknown, but Trump has pulled out of the Iran deal, as the Arabs wished, and he's dropped bombs in Syria, as the Arabs wished. Trump's first overseas trip was to the capital of Saudi Arabia, and Trump sided with the Saudis and the UAE when they tried to isolate their neighbor, an important American ally, the aforementioned nation of Qatar. Now that that squabble is over, Jared Kushner's family has found the funding it needs to pay the mortgage for 666 Fifth Avenue. And special counsel Robert Mueller is investigating this Trump Tower meeting, in addition to the Trump Tower meeting with Russians. Mueller even has the social media manipulator's computer servers, thanks to some help from Israeli police. And one of the businessmen at that second meeting has now flipped and agreed to testify for Mueller. That businessman is convicted pedophile George Nader, an advisor to the prince from the United Arab Emirates and an associate of top Trump campaign donor Elliot Broidy, who's also close to the two princes. You'll be hearing more about Nader and Broidy as this story continues to unfold in the days and weeks to come. You'll also be hearing about the other businessman at that Trump Tower meeting, Eric Prince, who's the brother of Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos. He's also a Republican donor and the former head of Blackwater. Trump tweeted, The witch hunt finds no collusion with Russia, so now they're looking at the rest of the world, he wrote. Oh, great, he added. As I mentioned, this new revelation about a Trump Tower meeting with men representing two Arab governments was first reported by the New York Times. Once published, Trump called the highly detailed story long and boring, and again with the witch hunt. Quoting the presidential tweet, Don't worry about Dems' FISA abuse, missing emails, or fraudulent dossier. And there's that dossier again. Trump is convinced that Obama used the United States Department of Justice to protect himself and to punish his enemies. In truth, no president has ever manipulated and interfered with the DOJ as much as has Trump. He's ordered justice to investigate its investigation as he looks for grounds to fire Rod Rosenstein and end the Russia probe. Stephen Bannon and former campaign chair Corey Lewandowski are among those urging Trump to do just exactly that much to the chagrin of White House counsel Don McGahn and Chief of Staff John Kelly. Trump has also asked the Justice Department to investigate the mayor of Oakland, California, for allegedly tipping off immigrants to a Trump-era roundup. Trump says that's obstruction of justice. 
And Trump's been pressuring the Postmaster General to double the rates for Amazon, whose owner publishes the Washington Post. Trump has tried repeatedly to hurt Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon and the Post. Tried to hurt Bezos in the pocketbook, apparently because of the Post reporting on this president. In short, Trump is, wherever possible, using the Justice Department to punish his enemies and to work to protect him. Historically and through the Obama administration, the Justice Department has remained independent of its president. The president never told the Justice Department what to do or not to do, and it didn't tell the president what it was investigating, much less the details. The Justice Department, although part of the executive branch currently headed by Trump, has always been independent, letting career prosecutors do their jobs. For a president to abuse his constitutionally granted powers is an impeachable offense. It was one of the charges against Richard Nixon in his impeachment hearings. That and obstruction of justice. We may witness impeachment all over again after this fall's election. While there may be debates about whether the president can be indicted while in office, we have learned that he can be sued. A New York appeals court has ruled that a defamation lawsuit brought by a former apprentice contestant can go forward. Trump's lawyers had argued that the Constitution protects him from lawsuits. The court ruled it does not, since it has nothing to do with his actions as president. In March, a judge rejected Trump's motion to have the case dismissed. Summer Zervos had accused Trump of sexually assaulting her in 2007 when she was on the show he then hosted. Trump responded by painting her as a liar at his public rallies and in interviews. Zervos then sued Trump for defaming her character and accusing him of lying about her. Zervos says she will drop the lawsuit if he retracts his statement and confesses to the assault. The judge says her case moves forward, president or not. Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates says he was unnerved to learn how much Trump seemed to know about his daughter's appearance. Gates' daughter Jennifer is now 22. Trump had met her earlier at a horse show in Florida. Gates says Trump's retelling of his encounter with the daughter made wife uncomfortable and that Gates himself was unnerved. And that was the first time Bill and Melinda Gates ever met Donald Trump. The second time was in March of last year at the White House. In that encounter, Gates says Trump asked him whether he should have a commission look into whether childhood vaccines are causing bad things. He'd heard that they were and asked Gates if that should be investigated. Gates told Trump, no, that would be a bad thing. Don't, don't do that. It was the second time Trump had asked Gates that same question. The first time was the year before when Mr. and Mrs. Gates were listening to eagerly shared details of Trump's encounter with their daughter. It was also at that 2017 White House gathering that Trump asked Gates if there's a difference between HIV and HPV. There is, of course, a huge difference. HPV is the virus that causes genital warts and potential cancer of the cervix. HIV is the virus that causes AIDS. And Gates says it was also the second time Trump had asked him that question. Trump repeating two questions he had already gotten Gates to answer the last time they had met the year before. But Trump could describe in disturbing detail the physical features of Bill and Melinda Gates' young adult daughter. Republicans have problems beyond Trump in the upcoming congressional elections. They have their own 
internal civil war between the party faithful in Congress and its conservative rebels. This internal Republican divide is so deep, Republicans as a group failed to pass the farm bill that would have made deep cuts in the food stamp program. The bill didn't get a single Democratic vote in the House, but it failed in that Republican-controlled body because of opposition by more than two dozen Republican conservatives who wanted a promise of implementing their brand of immigration reform as part of that bill. And as a result of that division and that divide, the Democrats won just by showing up. More than one in three Americans believes this country is headed in the right direction. That may not sound all that impressive, but that's the highest it's been in 17 years. And that would seem to be good news for Republicans as they struggle to hold on to Congress this year. But satisfaction numbers are also low in the latest Gallup polls. And Republican Senate and congressional candidates are campaigning in defense of Donald Trump, a figure the public deeply distrusts. Another new poll shows only 13% of us believes he is honest or trustworthy. 13%. That's not even half of his base, which means even half of his base thinks he's dishonest. But we digress. The high satisfaction rating has mainly to do with the economy. U.S. job optimism is at its highest point in 17 years as well. More than two-thirds of us saying this is a good time to find a quality job. Nearly two-thirds of those without a college education think it's a good time to find a good job, not far behind those with college on their resumes. Unemployment is at a 17-year low. Will Trump get the credit? Yes, from Republicans, and no, from Democrats, according to this new Gallup poll. But those smiles can turn to frowns as prices go up. You've likely already noticed, certainly at the gas station, you will also therefore notice it in airline tickets and package shipping. But prices are up all around. Suppliers are paying more, and so are we. By March of this year, prices were up more than 2% higher than they were in March of last year. The price of a mortgage is up by more than 4.5%. Gasoline's at its highest price in three years, up by nearly 25% over this time last year. They're charging more for the food now at McDonald's and Chipotle. Stanley Black & Decker is hiking the price of its tools. Tyson is planning to raise prices on its ballpark francs. The prices for paint, packaged food, and heating oil will follow. In the meantime, Americans are saving less despite all this satisfaction. Or they're falling behind on preparing for their retirements. A financial services company reports that nearly 80% of us are somewhat or extremely concerned about our retirements and that many of us have no retirement savings at all. About a third of us have less than $5,000 set aside for retirement. A third of the baby boomers about to retire have between $25,000 and zero. 40% of those between the ages of 55 and 64 are not even saving currently for retirement. And that is with the knowledge that Social Security is on shaky ground, especially under this Republican Congress. We're not even saving for the rainy days that come before retirement because so many of us are unable to save since so many of us struggle just to pay the bills. A new survey by the Federal Reserve Bank shows that about 40% of the adults in the U.S. couldn't scrape together the money for a $400 emergency expense. If a refrigerator or an air conditioner or a heating system goes... 40% of us will have to get a payment plan or a loan or sell something or sacrifice somewhere else 
if that's even possible. Oh, but the banks? Oh, the banks are fine. More than fine. That story, Bob Seska's take on it, the Korea mess, and more after this. More often these days, we're asked to pay for something we used to get free, the news. This news comes to you without a paywall, without corporate ownership, and it's free. So please do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a little commission from Amazon for that, so it's very helpful to shop through that link for homeschool, church, or office. If you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link, please support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thank you. Bank profits increased by 28% just in the first three months of this year. The banks made an extra $56 billion, a new all-time high for profits, and they're sitting on a cash reserve of nearly $2 trillion. J.P. Morgan Chase made over $8.5 billion. Morgan Stanley and Bank of America set new records. Goldman Sachs had its best first quarter in five years. The Trump-publican tax cuts certainly helped, along with the economy that Trump had inherited. The tax cut alone made the banks more than $6.5 billion. For the big banks and their executives, a new refrigerator is chump change. But Trump and this Congress may feel they've still not given the big banks quite enough. Day before yesterday, Congress gave Trump something he had promised on the campaign trail, the unraveling of a law called Dodd-Frank. That's a law passed in 2010 after the big banks and lenders had pillaged the economy and set off the Great Recession and the bailout of Wall Street. The law was passed to make sure that nothing like that ever happened again. The House voted on Tuesday of this week to roll back the regulations that were put into place by Dodd-Frank. With the same bipartisanship that gave us Dodd-Frank, a bipartisan vote in Congress also taketh away the protections it provided to the rest of us. Thousands of banks will no longer be subject to that level of federal oversight. That number's been cut to about 10 banks. And the bar has been lowered for what makes a bank too big to fail. Banks complained about these burdensome regulations, even as they hauled in record profits and bought all the refrigerators they wanted. Because this is personal to him, the rollback of Dodd-Frank is the subject of this week's passionate commentary from Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Those of you who've been following my work at the Daily Banter and elsewhere for the past six years know that the Great Recession absolutely clobbered me, not to mention millions of others. Whenever this topic pops up in conversation and war stories are exchanged about the full impact of the 2008 to 2011 crash, I often like to describe my experience as having included every possible downside one could endure during a significant recession, Minus suicide, of course. For those of you just joining us, my list included a short sale of an investment property, a foreclosure on my house, three cars repossessed, threatening calls around the clock from collection agencies, a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, the dissolution of a business I ran for 10 years, a tax lien, a contentious divorce, and dozens of sleepless nights. The hellscape I navigated during those years was so utterly devastating to my financial health, not to mention the many years it shaved off my lifespan due to the accompanying stress, I simply can't muster any tolerance for the bring back George W. Bush meme that's going around in response to Donald Trump's lawless incompetence. Yeah, Bush was slightly better than Trump, but his economic policies landed on my head like a Boeing 747 filled with bricks and exploding shrapnel. 
Therefore, I refuse to give Bush and his cronies more credit than they deserve simply because Trump is worse. George W. Bush and the deregulatory obsession of both parties, many more Republicans than Democrats, to be fair, during the 1990s and 2000s, kicked my ass. No matter how many adorable Wes Anderson Criterion Collection paintings Bush produces, it'll be a long time before I can hear the sound of his voice without exploding with rage. Ultimately, I recovered, and my credit score has since risen from ludicrously shitty, that's an actual credit score category, by the way, to the 700-plus good range. And as of July 2019, the Chapter 7 will be wiped clean off my record. Thanks to some luck and mostly the recovery triggered by President Obama's stimulus package, I'm back. The real question, however, is how long will it last, given the despotic, disruptive supervillain currently occupying the White House? On Wednesday, the House of Representatives voted to begin weakening the post-recession regulatory law known colloquially as Dodd-Frank. The full name of the law is the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. The first pass at undermining the law will effectively allow smaller banking institutions a free pass from regulations. If this rollback is signed by Trump, and there's no reason to believe it won't be, the New York Times reported that, quote, fewer than 10 big banks in the United States will remain subject to stricter federal oversight, freeing thousands of banks with less than $250 billion in assets from a post-crisis crackdown that they have long complained is too onerous. Oh, poor banks. The banks and, of course, Trump and his enablers on the Hill will tell you this rollback was necessary. They'll tell you that it's time for the government to get its boots off the necks of the corporations that precipitated the Great Recession. Bullshit. It's all whiny bullshit. Profits for the banking sector have climbed record levels as of this year, a 27.5% increase sector-wide over last year. As for the rest of us, enjoy that $2 bump in your paychecks, America. There's no widespread suffering as a consequence of the Dodd-Frank rules, even though there probably should be suffering a gap that's the direct consequence of Dodd-Frank being weaker than it should have been. The notion of breaking up the banks while reinstating the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933, which segregated commercial and investment banking, is a fantastic idea, provided it doesn't trigger a recession itself. Needless to say, the undermining of these regulations illustrates a soul-crushing epidemic of amnesia, both by the Republicans and the couple dozen House Democrats who voted to support it. More than anything else, though, the voters who cast their ballots for Trump, allegedly due to economic anxiety, can feel free to shut the hell up. This argument that we, the normals, need to somehow reach out to the Trump voters and speak to their economic needs is utter horseshit. Now more than ever, if they continue to support Trump after the president and his party destroy the safety nets created to protect ordinary Americans from another job-immolating recession— it's safe to conclude they're not particularly pissed about the economy. Instead, it's a safe bet they voted for Trump due to ugly cultural grievances, including sexism, racism, and white supremacy, to name a few. And I'm not at all sorry to observe that there's no way in hell these people will ever be convinced with some sort of economic outreach from the left. The Trumpers who were, in fact, genuinely pissed about the economy were most likely ignorant to its Obama-era status, or they're unfairly projecting their own anecdotal troubles onto Obama and the Democrats. Funny how none of these people are complaining about the national debt anymore, now that Trump is president. Likewise, they don't seem to mind that the labor participation rate is basically unchanged since Obama left office. Same goes for the real unemployment rate. 
The rest of us continue to understand that a retiring baby boomer generation is the actual cause of both statistics, but it was Trump and the Republicans who blamed Obama for those things. Until Trump became president, then both of these indicators vanished into a cloud of Trump's Aquanet hairspray. Voters who continue to insist today that Trump has single-handedly reinvigorated the economy also don't know what the hell they're talking about either. The trend lines for both unemployment and economic growth are merely continuations of the nearly 10-year trend since the passage of the aforementioned March 2009 stimulus. And anyway, if the Red Hats are okay with allowing the banks to decimate the economy for fun and profit, they deserve whatever shitstorm may arise. When it does, they'll blame the Democrats, even though they themselves seeded the clouds by stupidly voting for and supporting Trump. After too many years of awfulness brought on by deregulation, I have no quarter for those who tempt another economic meltdown. Please, please vote accordingly. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. And under this Supreme Court, workers have lost the right to join together to sue their employer in a class action. The pro-business court has ruled that employers can force workers to use binding arbitration and only as individuals, not as a group or class of plaintiffs. The vote was five to four along political lines. The court had earlier ruled the same for the company's customers. An increasingly vocal Ruth Bader Ginsburg called the decision egregiously wrong. And she called on Congress to strengthen the rights of women in equal pay lawsuits. She was joined in her dissent by Justices Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan. Republican appointees on the court, tipped to a majority by Trump's election, Neil Gorsuch, sided with business instead and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. The Trump administration may have pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, but it is by no means through with Iran. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo this week threatened Iran with the strongest sanctions the U.S. has ever placed on any country if Iran doesn't stop launching missiles, supporting terrorists, and interfering in Syria. Pompeo promised to crush Iranian operatives around the world. And he said that if Iran restarts its nuclear program, it will have, quote, bigger problems than they've ever had before. Pompeo said the sanctions will only grow more painful if Iran doesn't change its ways. Quoting Trump's Secretary of State, these will be the strongest sanctions in history by the time we're done. As so many of us had expected, there will be no meeting June 12th between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Trump canceled the talks this morning, citing tremendous anger and open hostility from North Korea. North Korea had already pulled out of its talks with South Korea's leader after Kim changed his mind about tolerating the annual joint military exercise that includes the U.S. and South Korea. And Kim had threatened to cancel the talks with Trump if the U.S. didn't back off its goal of making North Korea give up all its nuclear weapons. On the U.S. side, meanwhile, Trump's new national security advisor, John Bolton, had spouted off in a way that was too much even for Trump. Bolton said the U.S. might apply what he called the Libyan model to the denuclearization of North Korea. Vice President Pence was in agreement, the Libyan model. In that model, the U.S. had refused to lift sanctions on Libya without total denuclearization, and by the time it happened, Libya was starving and in chaos. In that situation, the U.S. got Libya's nuclear weapons, and its leader, Muammar Gaddafi, was removed from office and was subsequently killed by rebel forces after being sodomized 
with a sword. North Korea's Kim Jong-un is no doubt familiar with that story. Trump had to walk back Bolton's big talk, and he did. Trump called it not a model we have at all when we are thinking of North Korea. Trump says the situations are very different in that with Kim Jong-un, the U.S. is offering protections to Kim it didn't offer Gaddafi. It's not clear whether Trump knows what the Libyan model really is. He appears to think it's about NATO's intervention in Libya in 2011, based on remarks that included, we went in there to beat him. So this was the atmosphere surrounding the now-canceled Trump-Kim summit. Administration officials had already become more skeptical about whether the Trump-Kim summit would even happen, and they were worried about Kim's agenda if the meeting did happen, which it now will not. Trump was said to have been more focused on the pageantry than the pulp in the Korea talks, focusing on the optics and not the topics. The White House started issuing commemorative coins that may have prematurely given Kim Jong-un more than his due. The coins are a virtual tribute to a brutal dictator who starved his own people and ordered members of his own family murdered. Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un, it says on this minted-in-America gold coin. Today, that coin won't get you a cup of coffee. On Tuesday, Trump met South Korean President Moon Jae-in in the Oval Office. Both leaders had been commiserating over the past few days, but Moon kept telling Trump he believed North Korea was serious about striking some kind of denuclearization deal. Moon has more reason to want that deal than either Trump or Kim, and he's trying to present Kim's perspective to Trump and to stress the importance of having these talks and making a deal. Moon wanted Trump to know it won't be easy for Kim to give up everything. Kim had returned American prisoners and begun the destruction of a nuclear test site while threatening to call off the talks if Trump didn't show the desired amount of flexibility. Trump says he suspects China is behind the apparent breakdown in this new U.S.-North Korean diplomacy. A CBS News poll shows that 82% of Americans were already skeptical about the talks to denuclearize North Korea. The results of Trump's attempts to art a better trade deal with China are as mixed as the messages the Trump White House is sending in those negotiations. Since we last spoke, China has agreed to buy more stuff from the U.S. and cut its tariffs on American cars by more than two-thirds and to try to de-escalate a looming trade war. In agreeing to buy more stuff from the U.S., China agreed to, quote, meaningful increases in agriculture and energy exports. Trump's goal is to reduce a $375 billion trade deficit, but it isn't clear that the latest Chinese promises will close that gap. In fact, we don't have a dollar amount for China's latest concessions, and the reduced car tariff will help BMW, Porsche, and Mercedes-Benz more than it will help Ford or GM, which have plants in China and don't need to export them to China anyway. But with that... Trump Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin announced that the trade war is on hold and that the U.S. is suspending its plans to impose new tariffs on China, at least for now. But wait, there's more. Although he denies it now, it appeared Trump would follow through on his suggestion that the U.S. drop its sanction against China's second biggest phone maker, ZTE. That company had to shut down under tough U.S. sanctions to punish it for violating our sanctions against Iran, Syria, and Cuba, and for then lying about it. By making these new concessions to China, experts say the Trump administration has weakened its own bargaining position, making it harder for Trump to strike the deal he wants. 
infighting within the Trump administration has already made it difficult to strike a better deal with China. There's competition for the president's ear between Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, Chief Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow, and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. So far, the 80-year-old Ross is winning. The Chinese know about this internal competition, and they have been working to exploit it. The U.S. stock market's up on the news that the trade war with China is off for now, but investors are scratching their heads over what sounds to them like anything but the art of the deal. The art of the deal is the name of a book Trump wrote with the help of an actual writer. A famous New York Times business writer, Andrew Ross Sorkin, made it a point recently to reread Trump's book as Trump sets about renegotiating trade deals and prepares to maybe negotiate with Kim Jong-un. First, to be clear... Trump is not winning in these negotiations. Even Republican Marco Rubio sees that. China is winning, wrote Rubio on Twitter. Their concessions are things they plan to do anyways, he said. Trump has tipped his hand in his eagerness to make a nuclear deal with North Korea and tipped his hand in a new trade deal with China. The worst thing you can do in a deal is seem desperate to make it, wrote Trump in his book, The Art of the Deal. Trump also tipped his hand in the book. I never get too attached to one deal, he wrote, adding, I keep a lot of balls in the air because most deals fall out no matter how promising they seem at first. Quoting Andrew Ross Sorkin's piece in The Times, Trump's negotiating playbook is by now pretty obvious. Start with a headline-grabbing demand, beat chest loudly, then accept whatever's practical and call it a win. And Sorkin says the line in Trump's book that hit him hardest reads, you can't con people, at least not for long. You can create excitement, you can do wonderful promotion and get all kinds of press, and you can throw in a little hyperbole. But if you don't deliver the goods, people will eventually catch on. Art of the deal, Donald Trump. With the midterm elections approaching, Democrats have been quite concerned about the security of our voting system. Democrats were concerned that the Trump administration wasn't doing anything to prevent more foreign attacks on registration computers and even some voting machines. Finally, on Tuesday, as the midterm primaries continue, Trump Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen issued a statement saying that the administration takes this issue very seriously and is addressing it, in her words, with urgency. So a reporter asked Nielsen if she agreed with the U.S. intelligence community's unanimous conclusion that Vladimir Putin had ordered and executed an attack on the American political process that was aimed at helping Donald Trump win. I'm not aware of that, said Nielsen. This bears repeating. The Homeland Security Director publicly admitting she is unaware of a Russian attack on the U.S. or its purpose. The Homeland Security Director says she is unaware of a matter related to the nation's security. The Homeland Security Director in an office created after 9-11 says she is unaware of the unanimous conclusion of the United States intelligence community. The Homeland Security Director is unaware of an attack, she says, and unaware that its goal was to elect Donald Trump. In short, Trump's Homeland Security Director is unaware. But she says she's all over this voter security thing. And about this week's primary elections in Texas, Arkansas, Kentucky, and Georgia. In Georgia, a former state legislator won the right to carry the Democratic banner this fall in that state's selection of a new governor. This former state lawmaker is now the first woman to even run for governor in Georgia, and she is both well-known and popular. 
That candidate, Stacey Abrams, thanked her supporters, quote, everyone who believed the little black girl who sometimes had to go without lights or running water, who grew up to become the first woman to lead the Georgia General Assembly, could become the first woman gubernatorial nominee. She could become the nation's first black female governor. In Texas, a Latina who had once served as the sheriff of Dallas County will carry the Democratic banner into the November election for that state's governor. And a female veteran won the Democratic nomination for governor in Kentucky. Former Marine Corps fighter pilot Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath defeated the former mayor of Lexington in that state's Democratic race. We have lost more people this year to gun violence in schools, though, than we have lost soldiers. So far this year, 13 members of our military have died during their deployments, while 27 children died in our schools. The U.S. has more school shootings than any nation on Earth exponentially. Twice as many students have died in school than our soldiers in battle. The U.S. has more school shootings than Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, England, France, Germany, Greece, Guatemala, Israel, Italy, Japan, Northern Ireland, Poland, Russia, South Africa, Thailand, and several other countries combined. The U.S. has just a little over 10% of the world's population. And more than a dozen of those other countries have never had a school shooting. The U.S. has 57 times as many school shootings as the other big industrialized nations of the world. We now average one a week. Since January 1st, 2009, we have had at least 288 mass school shootings. We're number one. The school district in Santa Fe, Texas, where the latest mass casualty school shooting has just occurred, was as ready for that day as any school district can be, or so it thought. The Santa Fe district had an active shooter plan. Two police officers, sworn and armed, roamed the halls at the high school. At the start of the school year, district officials agreed to begin a program to arm teachers and staff to generate more good guys with guns. And despite all of that, 10 people died and more than a dozen were wounded as a 17-year-old boy who had been rejected by a girl and who may have been bullied brought a 38 handgun and a rifle he had taken from his father. But Santa Fe is not Parkland, Florida. This Santa Fe is in Texas, gun country, the Old West. This Santa Fe is a rural community located on the I-45 route to Galveston, more than an hour outside of Houston. So this is not Parkland. Many of Santa Fe's high school students are afraid to return to class, and a good number of them believe that the problem is guns. But they dare not speak that, they've discovered, even to members of their own families. To most Texans, certainly to the majority of Santa Fe, the problem is not guns. It's a heart problem says a 61-year-old woman who lives there. We need to bring God back into the schools, she said to a reporter from the Washington Post. The Republican governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, said, and I quote, the problem is not guns, it's hearts without God. And Texas's Republican lieutenant governor says the problem is not guns. He blames violent video games and abortions, broken families, the lack of religion in schools, and teachers without guns, oh, and doors, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick says schools need to have fewer doors. Anything but guns. Door control, not gun control. A father in Parkland, Florida, says Dan Patrick's comments are idiotic, moronic, and unacceptable. But then Parkland is not in Texas. Texas was the site of America's first mass school shooting ever. Shots fired from a clock tower at the University of Texas in Austin 
nearly 52 years ago. There was also a shooting at a high school graduation ceremony in Georgia this week, south of Atlanta. Here, a less attention-getting two people were shot, but one of them was shot to death. Both of the wounded were women, and in the commotion, a pregnant woman fell and was injured and taken to the hospital. Police are still looking for the shooter after what started as an argument in a parking lot. Former U.S. Education Department employee Peter Cunningham had an idea, and he posted it on Twitter. His former boss, former Education Secretary Arne Duncan, retweeted this idea. Cunningham had written that it might be time for parents to pull their kids out of school until the gun laws are changed. Former Education Secretary Duncan retweeted, adding, My family is all in if we can do this at scale. Parents, will you please join us? Duncan tells the Washington Post that the idea is wildly impractical, but he insists that some kind of aggressive action is needed if the gun laws are to ever change. Duncan says he also thinks it is wildly impractical that kids get shot while they're at school. I'm open to different ideas, said Duncan, but I'm not open to doing nothing. And it's just been within the past few days that the Trump administration slashed money from organizations that perform abortions. Federal law already prohibited the use of taxpayer dollars to fund abortion, so the health care providers were careful to draw that money from other sources and were forced to keep a close accounting of all of it. But so-called pro-lifers, led these days by Trump, want those health care providers to be denied federal funding altogether. Under the Trump administration order, organizations that get Title X grants will no longer have to tell their patients that abortion is an option. The order cuts funding, therefore, to Planned Parenthood, a favorite conservative target. That means it will be much harder now for Planned Parenthood to provide cancer screenings, STD testing, and birth control counseling. It will still get Medicaid funding, but conservatives hope to strip that money as well. The NFL's new national anthem rule, let the trolling begin, and is that Ode to Play-Doh you're wearing? In the third and final segment, up next... Cut the cord. Get the Heller Bluetooth earbuds from tweakedaudio.com. The Hellers are wireless to hook you up with your favorite songs, phone calls, and podcasts like this one. And the Hellers stay in your ears with five hours of use and 100 hours of standby time between USB charges. The Heller have a built-in mic, a storage pouch, and comfortable gels in three sizes. Tweaked Audio's wired earbuds come in a range of colors. You can even get buds in sets of two or three. And Tweaked Audio earbuds just sound better. You certainly can't beat the prices for this level of quality, guaranteed. Shipping is free anywhere in the world. And because everything sounds better on Tweaked Audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with my code BBNC at TweakedAudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through TweakedAudio.com and all my other great sponsors, as well as through the donate button at BuzzBurbank.com. A federal judge ruled yesterday that Trump's practice of blocking Twitter users who criticize him violates the First Amendment. Specifically, the judge cited Trump for keeping people from seeing what the President of the United States is posting, but moreover, silencing people who have a First Amendment right to speak. Trump has 52.5 million followers on Twitter. The number would be higher if not for the thousands who've been blocked. The judge ruled that Trump, or whoever operates his account, may mute responders so he doesn't see them, but that he may not block them. So what critics write will be there for the rest of us to see. 
A lawsuit filed on behalf of those blocked finally made it to the United States Supreme Court. What happens now that the court has ruled the practice unconstitutional remains to be seen. The immediate forecast calls for trolling. If the meteor shower of desperate news sets off your migraines, here's some good news about the migraines, not about the news. The FDA has just approved the first drug created to prevent migraine headaches, and it'll be on the market in a week. That's good news for some of the millions of Americans who have a lot of migraines. Amovig is made by Novartis, a name that's been in the news for less flattering reasons recently. And this miracle drug to prevent migraines costs just under $7,000 a year. But for some migraine sufferers, no price is too high. The CEO at Bumblebee Foods has agreed to plead guilty to a conspiracy to fix prices on packaged seafood. Along with executives at Starkist and Chicken of the Sea, this tuna fish king conspired to lock in artificially inflated prices. They all did. The NFL yesterday approved a new policy on the national anthem to try to end the protests that have been bad for business. The team's owners have voted to fine teams whose players kneel to protest racial injustice. Players who don't wish to stand for the anthem can stay in the locker room until the anthem is over. But it'll also be up to each team to set its own policy whether to even discipline a player for a protest. The owner just has to pay the fines imposed by the league. Let's see what happens next. Well, the ratings are in. Nearly 30 million Americans got out of bed very, very early Saturday morning or stayed up all night to watch the royal wedding. The man who wrote Portnoy's complaint and Goodbye Columbus has died at 85. Philip Roth wrote about sexuality, about being a guy, being Jewish, and all with a dark side sense of humor. He displayed his talents in 31 novels inside of 50 years. Ross said that while some authors shine a flashlight on the world, he would dig a hole and shine the flashlight into that. American author Philip Roth, gone at 85. And now, at long last, the fun stuff. There's a new king of the box office. Deadpool 2, as expected, has knocked Avengers Infinity War out of the top spot. Deadpool 2 opened with $125 million dollars and tickets sold in the U.S. and Canada. Second place is fine with The Avengers, whose sequel has made nearly $2 billion worldwide, making Infinity Wars the biggest superhero movie of all time. It's all good news for Disney and Hollywood in general, where revenues are 63% higher than they were at this time last year. Movie attendance is up more than 6% this year over last. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. What's that scent you're wearing? Is it eau de Play-Doh? The toy company Hasbro has just trademarked the smell of Play-Doh. The scent of that thick goo is unique and fondly familiar. Hasbro describes it as a, quote, sweet, slightly musky, vanilla-like fragrance with slight overtones of cherry and the natural smell of a salted wheat-based dough. I don't get the cherry overtones, but then it's been a while since I've sniffed Play-Doh. Hasbro has not talked publicly about its plans for this now trademarked aroma, and perhaps that's for the best. Congratulations, high school student. Here's your diploma and your Crocs. 
All the young women graduating from Seminole High in Florida wore white croc shoes for this week's walk across Tropicana Field. All the dress code said was white shoes. It didn't say what kind. The girls were concerned about walking successfully across the artificial turf in high heels. One graduating senior, Sarah Aji, started a Twitter campaign that was so effective, the shoe company sent all the girls white Crocs in all the proper sizes, 124 pair of white Crocs. Quoting the company's marketing guy, this might be the first time more than 100 pair of Crocs crossed the same graduation stage. Sarah, who launched the Twitter campaign, says it's all about setting your mind to doing something and then making it happen. Quoting her, it was cool, really cool. A Texas police department got a letter that began, Dear Fullshear Police Officer. It was from an elementary school student, handwritten with a pencil on lined notebook paper. The girl, whose name is redacted from the department's tweet, reads, Thank you for pulling my mom over because she deserved it. She took my phone away and I did not like it. Did not like it was in boldface thanks to the clever transition to a crayon. And, continued the letter, how she always brags about how good of a driver she is and it just annoys me. And how about that one time she got pulled over because she did not have a sticker on her window. When she came home and told me about that, I just laughed. I also remember that time when my mom's back lights weren't working and she got pulled over. The girl and her classmates had been instructed to write a letter to police thanking them for their service. Some letters were more forthcoming than others. This week's Something Spilled All Over the Road story hails from Charlotte, North Carolina, where the pre-dawn crash of a semi on I-8485 closed three lanes of a busy freeway, and suddenly the road was covered with nails. We're laughing. The people who got flat tires are not. And okay, who ordered the crackers from Amazon? From the home office in Florida, where it's not that unusual for someone to own an African gray Congo parrot. One owner says his parrot is obsessed with Amazon's household assistant, Alexa. Petra the parrot likes to tell Alexa to turn on the lights, often in the middle of the night. She also likes to turn the lights on again and then repeat the process. The sky may be the limit since this four-year-old bird can speak more than 300 words. Petra also likes to use Google Home, although not nearly as much as she likes Alexa. Petra now has her own YouTube channel, of course, including one video in which Petra says, Alexa, I love you. When a package of bird seed arrives at the front door, it's time to worry. When police in North Ridgeville, Ohio, heard from a man who said he was being stalked by a pig, they reasonably assumed the guy was drunk. They found out he was not drunk and that he was not hallucinating and that he really was being followed by a pig when they sent a car to investigate. It was just before dawn when the man began walking home from the train station after working a night shift. That's when the pig started following him. After a short stint at the animal shelter, the pig has been reunited with its owner. An officer had stuffed the pig into his patrol car. And the department's Facebook post wanted anyone who thinks a pig in a police car is ironically funny that it's, quote, actually unoriginal. And there was a monkey on the loose in Terminal B at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport this week. A rhesus macaque named Darwin was flying from Brown University to the Born Free Animal Sanctuary. Darwin didn't care for air travel as it pertains to monkeys, and he busted out of his cage in the bag handling area backstage with the machinery that drives the conveyor belts. Because of its structure, Darwin was having a blast on what must have looked to him like 
monkey bars. And in Nebraska, animal control was called in to untangle the tails of six baby squirrels who were locked together on the side of a tree. They had to move as a group, like the group hug on the old Mary Tyler Moore show. Their bushy tails had all become entwined, so the squirrels had to be taken as a bundle to the Humane Society Rehab Center, where the executive director calmed them with a mild sedative and carefully pried them apart. It took her an hour, but by cutting away the sap-covered fur, she was able to untangle this tangled tail. She says most of the squirrels will be okay and will be scampering in the woods again in a few weeks. Their tails had apparently gotten welded together by tree sap while they were wrestling in their nest, proving once again why mom can't leave the house for five minutes. All these false alarms mean we won't be paying attention when the real zombie apocalypse comes. Again from the home office, city officials in Lake Worth, Florida, have apologized for their warning early Sunday morning about, quote, a power outage and zombie alert for residents of Lake Worth and Terminus. Terminus is a fictional city in TV's The Walking Dead. There are now far less than 7,380 customers involved due to extreme zombie activity, said the alert, adding, restoration time is uncertain. The lights came on less than half an hour later. The city's communications specialist is investigating and announced, I want to reiterate that Lake Worth does not have any zombie activity currently. And in Florida's Broward County, sheriff's officers are looking for the two men who robbed a car wash of $849 in quarters. Finally, the Kozinski family of Charleston, South Carolina, was rightfully proud that their son Jacob had graduated high school with the highest honor, summa cum laude. Jacob had been schooled at home under a Christian education program approved by the state, and he graduated summa cum laude. So his very proud family ordered a cake from Publix that would read, Congrats, Jacob, summa cum laude, class of 2018. Dad picked up the cake box and didn't peek. It was to be unveiled at Jacob's graduation party. And when they opened the box, they discovered that summa cum laude had been replaced with summa dash 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 laude. The Publix Bakery, part of a company supporting Republican candidates, responded by saying it doesn't do profanity. And that is how Jacob celebrated his graduation, listening to his mom, of all people, explain to the party guests why the C-U-M had been censored from his cake. We might assume that Publix would put out a memo now advising his bakeries it's okay to use the letters C-U-M in this context, but that's just an assumption. Publix did give the family a refund and an apology, but any announcement of a policy change still hasn't come. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank News and Comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.